I'm, like many of you, I'm a, I'm a member of various groups and clubs. Um, I'm a member of Costco. I'm, as many of you know, uh, on the Little League board for the, for the community here. And uh, I used to be on the Stanwood Commando Chamber of Commerce as uh, representing the church. Um, and as you decide to be a part of various groups or clubs, you, you kind of do a cost-benefit analysis, right? Like, is this going to be worth it? What am I going to have to give up? What is going to be the time commitment, the money? What is this going to require of me? Versus what are the benefits? So Costco, am I, am I going to get access to good deals um, of l on lots of things and confidence that, that the products will be quality? Um, with the Little League, am I going to be able to, to be a benefit to the league and the community? Um, with the Chamber of Commerce, are we going to be able to be a, a visible witness in that way as a church? And so you're always weighing these things. Will the benefits outweigh the costs or at least even out? There may be other motivations for why you join groups and, cl and clubs and, and, and whatnot, but surely this is in your mind to a degree. Is this going to pay off? But I wonder if this is how we approach belonging to Christ and to his church as well. Is this the same process we go about? Lists out the costs, lists out the benefits. It does this way out in the end. What am I getting out of this? What's it going to require of me? Do we unknowingly just adopt the same methods, very much an individualistic, consumeristic approach to the church? Well, today's passage is going to speak into this. We're going to start in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 7, 11, 17. We'll read the first section here. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So just... Kind of unpacking the, the situation here, uh, there was some division in Corinth. We are, if you've been with us at all through the series, you already know that. Um, a lot of this letter is touching on the various factions and divisions going on in this church. Um, in many ways, it was a very dysfunctional church. Uh, but this is kind of a new division here. This is a division uh, where there is, there is a lack of concern and care for one another, particularly along socioeconomic lines. So the wealthy disregarding, treating poorly the poor. And specifically, it's showing up as they come together, as they gather together as a church, and specifically as they take communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, they are likely in somebody's house, right? They're likely in somebody's house, and the peop various people have brought the elements, the bread and, and the wine. Uh, perhaps the rich probably have brought most of this stuff. And Yet some of them were going ahead before even everyone's there and just partaking of this meal, uh, doing it, not waiting for others, not thinking about one another. And then some are even getting drunk 
just filling themselves up. They were using this event that was meant to remember and celebrate and unify around Christ and his self-giving love. They were using this event as a way to, to hurt one another, to just think about themselves and fill their stomachs. And Paul is very emphatic that this should not be. Like, this is not okay. He asks, asks these rhetorical questions to help them see their sin, and to help them in a productive, positive sense, to shame them that they might turn. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? I'm not going to commend you in this. And then, to explain to them why this is so out of place, why this is not okay, he turns their attention to the meaning and the significance of the Lord's Supper. So what is this event? What is this, obs- this thing we observe together? And so this next passage uh, we, is one we often read as we uh, do communion together, but here we get to see the, the larger context of it. So verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what is the Lord's Supper? What is what we often call communion, that we celebrate here every week, that Christian churches have been celebrating for 2,000 years, since the time of Scripture here, since the first century. Well, it is a remembrance and a proclamation of who we are by faith in Christ. It is a remembrance and proclamation of who we are by faith in Christ and what it took to accomplish that. We are remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death for our sake, for our sin, and our utter dependence and identity and hope in that. We are proclaiming this message. We are remembering it. We are staking our claim to it again and again and again. Um, Paul says, or, or he quoting Jesus, he sa- Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Now, what does that mean? Uh, well, the rest of Scripture helps us understand this. So, 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, for our sake, so God loves us, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took our sin, our shame, our guilt on himself at the cross so that we might gain forgiveness, be welcomed into his loving arms, so that we might become the beloved children of God, so that we might become those who love him and worship him and trust him and obey him now and into eternity, his people. 
And this is the fulfillment of all that God has been doing from the very beginning. This is the, the centerpiece, the, the defining moment of God's salvation, right? This is the point in the movie when everything begins to make sense that helps explain everything else. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This event that gives this, this high point of all of history that gives meaning and significance to everything else. Romans 3 puts it well, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we are specifically told to continue remembering and proclaiming this until He comes. So that means as long as you are alive here on this earth, we are to continue remembering this. We are never to move on from this. The depth of our sin that the cross exposes and the depth of God's mercy and love for us that the cross reveals and proclaims and promises are never to be far from our minds. Continue remembering this. Continue to proclaim this. Now, we can get all of that right, and we certainly want to do our best to get that right. The cross is important. But we can get all of that right and still be like the Corinthians here and still fail to see what Paul is saying. Because this section on the Lord's Supper isn't here, isn't right here, simply to make sure that we understand the salvation that is in Jesus. That's important. But it's here so that we understand that this salvation has implications. That this salvation calls us to certain things, particularly in relation to others. Paul gets into this right here. He get, devotes this several verses to the Lord's Supper to show us that if we approach salvation and church merely in individualistic ways, in consumeristic ways, that we have not rightly grasped the gospel. And we see that as Paul transitions now in verse 27. Whoever therefore... So Paul has just laid out, here's what the Lord's Supper means and is. But let's draw a conclusion from that. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So, again, therefore, connects this passage to the previous paragraph about the Lord's Supper. The reason that their disregard for one another and their selfish behavior is wrong is not merely because other people matter and we should be kind to them. That's, that's true. You should. But that's not the basis of the unity and love within the church. That's not the only basis. The greater reason their behavior is wrong is because, the, because of the unity and community required by the cross, called for by the cross. Right? The, 
the point as you put these two paragraphs together is twofold. One, the body and blood of Jesus that we recognize and celebrate and proclaim in communion is no small insignificant thing and is not to be done lightly just however we want. But secondly, the church community, the people to which we belong, is also no small insignificant thing to be treated however we want. And the two are related. To minimize one is to minimize the other, right? The theology of the cross, of Christ and his atonement for our sins, is connected to the theology of the church. In other words, our belief in Jesus and our grasp of him by faith is meant to have practical effects in how we engage with and love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. So two, two specific points to draw out of this. Uh, I'll give you, to, give you them to you up front and we'll go through them. First, the gospel heals us of our selfish individualism. The gospel heals us of our selfish individualism. And then relatedly, the gospel heals us of our harmful divisions. First, the gospel heals us of our selfish individualism. So you, I'm sure most of you have heard this passage before. And what, what are your thoughts about this unworthy manner of observing the Lord's Supper? Like, what do we think that is? What is observing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way that leads to guilt concerning the body and blood of the Lord? Well, we tend to read this in very individualistic ways, right? Well, I didn't, I've got some unconfessed sin in my heart. I, I haven't searched my heart, and I'm not living in the light before God. That's good do those things, but that's not the point here. The point here, the unworthy manner of observing the Lord's Supper, is disregarding one another. It is particularly communal, relational. It is about approaching communion and Christ himself merely as a personal benefit with no concern for those with whom you are gathered with no concern for the rest of the church. Right? The, the root issue here that is just as much an issue for us as it was for the Corinthians, whether or not we're coming together and getting drunk off the wine, which I haven't noticed yet, <laughs> but the root issue here is that what they are doing is a self-centered view of Christ and his benefits. And with that, a disregard for the relational community implications of belonging to Christ. We'll take our communion. We'll take the benefits of knowing Christ. Celebrate what it does for us. But ignore what it calls us to. We'll live as if the worship of Christ can be done with disregard for the body of Christ, for his church. We want the rights without the responsibilities. We want the benefits without the change. We want the Savior without the Lord. We come to church and we ask, what's in it for me? What's, what's the cost-benefit analysis here? Did you guys print that out on a piece of paper? Can I see it before I come? I've got to see if this is worth it. 
And we fail to see that the cost is not measured by what we give, but by what Christ has already done for us. That the cost has already been paid for, and then there's no cost to us that can ever outweigh, no sacrifice that we can make that can ever outweigh the benefits that he gives. And so Paul will end this section. We'll get to this verse in a little bit, but he, a little bit later he says, wait for one another. Now, that's a very simple command, right? Like they're going ahead doing communion on their own, but he says, wait for one another. Well, what does that mean? Why? Why should we wait to celebrate and proclaim the giving of Christ for our sins? Why not do it alone? Why can't we stay at home watch a church service online, have our own personal quiet time with God, take communion on our own. Now, there are unusual circumstances where you can't gather with the church. Some may actually be homebound and not able for a period to gather with the church. But the reason home church or online church or personal quiet time is not a substitute for gathering with the church is because the salvation in Jesus is not merely an individualistic thing. It calls us into a family. It calls us to a people. It calls us into a body. And it calls us to certain responsibilities within that body, to love and serve. When we hear, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me, we should consider that this, these are the words given not just for us, but for others that we gather with. That this body was given not just for us, but for others. I mean, with the, just in a very simple example, when you celebrate a momentous occasion with a meal, which I'm sure you do at times, with a birthday, anniversary, just getting together with some neighbors or friends, when you celebrate something special like that, you don't typically do it alone. Kind of takes out the celebratory aspect of it. You like to celebrate with others. You invite others in. If that is the case with such human celebrations, how not, how not much more with remembering and proclaiming Christ? That this is meant to be done together. How else could we celebrate? Relatedly, secondly, the gospel heals us of our harmful divisions, the ways that we tend to separate from one another. Again, the immediate context here is the, the, the wealthy disregarding and treating poorly the poor. But this applies to much more than just income distinctions. The, the gospel levels the playing fields across, across everything. There's only one way to come to Christ, empty, with nothing. You don't come bringing anything. You don't come holding on to anything, offering anything, boasting anything. You don't come with demands. You don't come saying, God, here's what I've done. Here's my goodness, my, why I'm deserving. Here's what I'm gifted at. Here's why you need me on your team. All of these things that we use to make distinctions and separate ourselves from one another and create an identity, 
They don't give us a leg up with Christ. So when we take communion, there is no place for looking down on one another. Separating ourselves from others, creating divisions. This meal is for all who would come. Christ welcomes all who would come to him, regardless of, with no distinctions. If any would come. Now again, I don't know how you hear that, but we're probably all nodding our heads. And perhaps we hear that mostly about ourselves, which we should. That's an invitation for us. But think about that for those in your life, those around you. Do we celebrate that Christ's body is for the brother who has lived in sexual immorality and secrecy and, and lies and taken advantage of others, but now comes to Christ? Do we celebrate that Christ's body is for the sister who is harsh with her husband and her children? The brother or sister who have yet to realize the extent of their selfishness and their pride and their bitterness and their divisiveness. Who don't own up to all their sin, but know that they need a Savior. Do we celebrate that Christ's body is for our spouse or those closest to us when they hurt us, when they sin against both God and us? For those who make our life more difficult? Do we celebrate the sufficiency of Christ for the sins of others against us? If they, if they are his. Do we rejoice that Christ's body is fo- for those with nothing in this world and for those who have much if they would come, not holding on to what they have but clinging to Christ? Do we celebrate it as for those who are able to serve and give and contribute much and those who are not? There are certainly individual aspects to salvation. We have to come, each of us. But in communion, as we take communion together, we have the opportunity to celebrate that this is not just for us. And we are not alone in this. We have the opportunity to celebrate the beauty and sufficiency of the gospel, not just for ourselves, but for others. And and sometimes that helps us appreciate the gospel more. Because if you're normal, you tend to see other people's sins as worse than your own. You know, the whole plank in the eye type thing. We tend to clearly see other people's the way other people hurt us and sin against us and not see our own as clearly. But, and so if we can realize that the cross is sufficient even for the sins of others against us, it can help us see how wonderful and sufficient and beautiful it actually is. And doing this, calls us then to consider our own attitude and behavior towards one another. If God is willing to forgive their sin, if God was willing to send Jesus to forgive their sin and welcome them in, then we know we are called to do the same. 
Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then Paul ends this section by calling us to consider our hearts and our behavior so that we might not sin against one another. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, whenever you come across the word judge in Scripture, we need to kind of stop and consider what is, is meant, because there's different types of judgment. There is a negative, sinful judging that is a prideful thinking highly of yourself, thinking of yourself as better than others. That is not good. That is sinful. But there is a positive judging that is simply about discerning, seeing things accurately, being honest and truthful about things. And that's what we are called to do here in regards to ourselves, to judge ourselves rightly, to see ourselves as best as we can in light of God's holy will. Keep your eyes open regarding your life. Keep your eyes open for ways that you, in context here, are failing to love and remember and consider one another, for ways that the gospel hasn't fully taken root and changed you and formed you particularly in how you love one another. As we see, God, God disciplines us. God graciously disciplines us for our good. However, um, you know, you could kind of take this as, as a command to beat God to it, right? Like, yes, God is going to discipline his children for love, but discipline yourself. Try to always be in tune and aware of, of ways that you can be growing, acknowledge your sin and turn from it. Live daily in submission to God and his word. Be open to his spirit leading you. And do this not because the most important thing in life is to find and root out every single sin in your life. That's not all that God calls us to. That's not the essence of salvation. But do this because you are not your own. And you've been bought with a price. And because you are not your own, but belong to God, you also belong to his people. The cross is connected to the community of God's people. Belonging to Christ means belonging to his church. Loving Christ means loving his church, whom he loves. John writes, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, it's really easy to say you love God because, well, you can't see him. He's not as physically present in your life as somebody who constantly nags and, and bugs you or whatever, the ways that we sin against and annoy one another. It's really easy to say you love God, but have that mean nothing in your life. But one of the ways that your love for God is shown and proved is by your love for one another. 
So we're going to take communion now, and I should be obvious, there's not really much I need to do to set this up. But I encourage you to take a moment to consider how might not just your taking of communion, but your, your coming to Christ, how might you be doing that in overly individualistic ways that disregard or downplay the call to belong and love and serve one another? How might you be coming to Christ in ways that create divisions in the church? You'll have a few minutes to do this now, but I encourage you, don't just do this now. Do this as you go on and continue. And us as a church, we should be aware. I mean, this is a letter written to a church, and this was a church-wide issue. There are ways that we as a church can, can get this wrong. And ultimately, do this sort of assessing and judging of yourself, knowing that Christ welcomes you, not because you've figured out every area of your life that needs fixing and fixed it, not because you are sinless, not because you have nothing to confess, but because you do, because you are not sinless, but because he has given himself for you and for all who would come for all who recognize their need. And he is sufficient. That's what we celebrate. Let's pray.